Welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Listeners, I'd like to set this episode in context because I have a feeling it's one that might be listened to in weeks, months, maybe even years from now. I'm recording this intro on the 15th of April, 2020, in the midst of a global pandemic. Just today, the total number of COVID-19 cases has surpassed 2 million. The world is in lockdown as we fight this invisible and deadly enemy. Nations worldwide have turned their attention to the people who will get us through this global emergency. Millions of selfless, hard-working and dedicated men and women who, well, quite frankly, haven't always received this kind of recognition. Attention has also turned to how organisations are protecting these essential workers. CEOs are asking how they can best serve, support and thank those bravely standing on the front line. Indeed, how leaders choose to communicate with their people during this crisis could well define their entire careers. Now, all of this has enormous implications for us as internal communicators. Our skills, our insight, our plain old intuition has never been in greater demand. We now have our seat at the table, even if the actual table is in our kitchen. So for all of you working so hard to keep the comms show on the road, here's a very special treat. Bill Quirk is one of the world's leading authorities in internal comms. He is the author of two seminal books, Communicating Corporate Change and Making the Connections, plus numerous tools, strategies and models that have profoundly influenced our profession. We recorded this episode in those halcyon days back in March 2020, when it was still possible to actually record face-to-face in our London studios. So we do touch on the pandemic here briefly, but we cover so much more. So sit back and enjoy Bill's tremendous wisdom, perception, and his many fascinating and funny stories born from a lifetime of hands-on comms experience. Bill, it is an absolute honour to have you on the show. I feel like having you on the show is a bit of a rite of passage for the Internal (laughs) Comms podcast. We really are an Internal Comms podcast show now. We have you in the hot seat in the studio, so that's wonderful. So thank you very much for your time. Oh, delighted to be asked. I'd like to start not quite near the beginning, but take you back to 1973, if I may. And you are about to become an undergraduate at Oxford University to study philosophy and English, I believe. I'm wondering what were the career aspirations (laughs) of the young Bill Quirk at that time? Well, I was doing English. So I did the first degree in English, and then I did the master's in research in romantic poetry, and I had no expectation of a career. Ah. We were in the the happy position in the 70s that we were paid to read books we liked. Yes. With the assumption that you would then pay for it by going into a very boring job afterwards. (laughs) And since I was doing research in romantic poetry, my dad, who's a lorry driver, thought this is completely useless. 
and I didn't know that it was going to turn out to be incredibly useful. Mm. So, you know, English as a degree, I think, is the perfect preparation for life. So I went to the careers advisors at university, <laughs> and they suggested it was the Thursday, and they said I should be an investment banker. Right, which okay. was a complete. I think they said it to everybody who came in that day, <laughs> uh, which I thought was a complete waste of time. And the only thing that I had that was kind of career aspirations was there's a quote from Keats, which is "I am ambitious of doing the world some good." Right, okay. and I think that was my only vague idea about what I should do. Just out of curiosity, has that love of romantic fictions uh, and, and poetry stayed with you? Yeah, very much. And I kept slipping it into the books. In the first book, there's a, a comparison between the decentralisation of business units and the plot of King Lear. <laughs> yeah. And all that whole Victorian debate about, uh, you know, what's the relationship between people? How do you, you know, are you just buying their muscles or do you have a different responsibility to them? Right, uh, yes. Equally, how do you get, how do you unleash the creativity and the imaginative side of people? All that's been, you know, that's current for the last 30 years. Do you, I mean, I'm just thinking about that because I get the feeling now people are quite motivated by the job at the end of it. I'm looking at Alex, who's helping the recording here. He's quite a few years younger than me, but you would have left with a with a, a loan, a student loan to pay off. Uh, do you lament the fact now that people aren't just going to university for the love of learning and to, to learn and read a subject they just feel passionately about, but possibly now? Yeah, I don't lament it. I think my three daughters went to university with a very different expectation. Right. And one of them did come back and say, hang on, you told us it was amazing, and it wasn't. Really? So they went uh, having to pay, mm-hmm. wondering about what value they were getting for the money, uh, applying a slight consumerist attitude to, you know, I paid the money, I expect teaching right and they didn't get what what i got which was one a free education mm-hmm. and the ability to to learn and get excited so my you know my second year when i was 20 i got very excited about literature and romantic poetry yes yes i, I don't think i'd have that luxury now i'd be thinking hang on a second how am i going to get a job at the end of all this yes we yes. all expected that there would be a job yes. i don't think that you know my, my daughter's generation have that expectation at all no, no and i think that's a big issue for when you understand what's going on inside organizations is the entire set of attitudes and expectations has completely changed. Right. Okay. So I think we thought when we you know when we started doing telecommunication, we were reacting against the command and control 1950s organisation man that you sell your soul for a job. Yes. We thought, no, we want to be involved and engaged and included, at bracket, with the expectation we keep a job. <laughs> yes. And I don't think, I think we, we got used to the idea of there were no jobs for life. I don't think we expected to have a situation where there was a life without necessarily a job. Yes, yes. So I think, you know, things have moved on quite a bit. They really have changed. I'm going to jump you forward a little bit to when you were at the PR firm Burson Marstella. Yeah. And now I read this and I don't know if it's true, but I was I, I read <laughs> that you were asked to become its internal comms expert before you really knew what IC was, really. Is that true? Yeah, it's very true. I was, uh, when I joined, they said, you are going to be the expert in this. And I said, well, I don't know much about it. And they said, well, you've got three weeks, because in three weeks you're speaking at the CBI on the subject. <laughs> so you better get good quickly. But the, the shift, I, I mean, I had some kind of preparation because I came out of university and went into publishing, which is a natural extension. If you love books, you go into publishing, um, where not all the books are very lovable. Uh, <laughs> but I got into this because I was on a plane to New York 
and I got talking to a guy to my left who turned out to be president of a consultancy. At the end of the flight, he offered me a job in New York. Wow. So I left publishing, moved to New York, and started consulting. And that's how I ended up in Burst Marcella. So I the, see. You know, it, it keeps saying that God laughs with plans, which is, you know, <laughs> there wasn't much career planning because there was, you know, there were these you know, odd moments where things happened. Yes. Uh, which have, you know, this is not where I expected to have ended up. But that's kind of quite comforting to know for all those people starting <laughs> out who are thinking, oh, I don't really know what the plan looks like. Think about the next opportunity, yeah. maybe. <laughs> I think I think you're right, because the, um, I mean, one of the questions you'd asked was about, you know, what were my career plans and aspirations? Mm. And I thought I didn't have any, but I did have an openness to opportunity and risk. Okay. And I did have uh, a, a focus on, you know, the, uh, there is something I do that is useful and valuable. So my expectation when I came at university is you get a job and they have to pay you. Yes. Whereas I think the shift now is, hang on, you have to be valuable and do something that someone's willing to pay for. Yes. And I think that's been a real shift, which is, you know, why would someone hire you? Yes. And what is it that you offer? So I think people now have to be, you know, more focused on what's marketable about them. Yes, yes. Uh, but, you know, thank God, in the world of internal communication, you know, common sense is pretty rare. The ability to, you know, think and articulate, it, it, you know, isn't all that widespread. Mm. So there are some basic skills, I think, which are still very valuable and very mm. marketable. How did the speech go at the CBR after those three weeks? <laughs> it went pretty well, actually. The, the, the thing is, I mean, it's quite funny looking back, is no one knew what internal communication was. Mm-hmm. They, they knew there was something and so they all marketed it differently. Right. And the trouble is, every time you explained it in terms of some other discipline, you picked up all the baggage of that discipline. Ah. So when you called it, well, it's like internal PR. Yes. So it's like, okay, that's lying to employees then. <laughs> and you said, well, well, it's more like internal marketing. And it's like, oh, well, okay, that's smoke and mirrors for employees. Exactly. Then. And so they focused on the idea of internal motivation, which is you can get more out of your people. Mm. If you focus on them, a person must tell you you're always the last you're the last audience they ever thought of. You're always the afterthought. Yes, and that's an incredible lesson because if you they, they would literally go through who do we need to talk to, uh, the city we need to talk to, we need to talk to the media. Then there'd be a long pause, and they go look at me, and I go employees, and they go oh yeah them as well. Mm. So mm. it was always not, and that taught me a lot of lessons about the hierarchy in communication. Yes, yes, that you know media tends to come first. Because you, you know, te- everyone's terrified of the journalists. Yes. Uh, city analysts come second because they'll destroy your share price. But the people they never really thought about were employees because there was a naivety that said, if you tell your employees what to do, they will do it. And the irony mm. is, yeah, probably they won't. Yes, exactly. Or they'll sabotage you. Was there a point then when you thought, oh, I think I might have found my niche, I might have found my field? Do, do you remember that, that actual feeling or time when you realised? this is something I could devote a career to. Yes. I can remember a colleague saying to me, you're like a fish that's found the water. I owe a lot to the clients who trusted me. Yes. And I remember when I wrote the first book, that came almost entirely out of one client Mm. who uh, I would be taken into the board and say, here's what we should do. And they would say, why? (laughs) And you'd have to think, yeah, actually, why? Why should we do this? Mm. And so all my four box models, all the diagrams were really on a flip chart in the boardroom saying, look, here's why we should do this. And the, the most Glaswegian, unsympathetic finance director you could find would go, okay, I understand the logic. And so it, it forced me to articulate what I felt, you know, instinctively and intuitively. 
See, I think that might be your secret sauce because I, I put on Twitter that I was interviewing you and I knew I'd get a response from people that had questions. Right. <laughs> and a lot of them are using your four box models. Right. And your escalator, your communication yeah, system. Yeah. But if they came out of physically being in the room with a flip chart and a pen and having to convince someone, no wonder they work. They weren't developed in theory with, you know, a hot towel over your head thinking mm. about it. They were developed you know, having to look in the whites of your eyes yeah. of your clients. And usually under pressure from very sceptical skeptical people. Mm. So the, you know, the, the clients used to tease me about, you know, consultants and the, the, what terrible people they are. They've, they've uh, you know, there are people who can tell you 101 ways to make love but don't have a partner themselves. <laughs> uh, but the one I liked, I thought was actually right, that resonated for me was a, a consultant who is someone who sees something working in practice and wonders what work, work in theory. And that's pretty much my career because you'd, you'd be scrabbling to explain or justify what you were saying and you had to explain it in a language that appeal to systematic yes. you know, engineers yes. who need to understand the logic of this. Whereas Intel communicates would go, yeah, abs- I'm with you. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. And the other thing I, I think is, most of what I've written is, is, I don't think it's revelation. I think it's recognition. I think oh. people go, ah, oh, yeah, that's kind of what I thought. I mean, most clients would say, God, he stands up in front and talks to people and gets paid. <laughs> I've been telling them that for years and they wouldn't listen to me. <laughs> So one of the reasons I wrote the books was with the idea that, um, you know, an, an internal communication manager would go to photocopy, photocopy a bit of the book, yes. take it in, highline it, yes. and give it to their boss and say, see, yes. this is what I've been saying for years. Yes, absolutely. And here's some external you know, validation of it. One of the things I did notice doing some research in preparation for this big show is that you have spent... I'm not sure if it's all of your career, but a lot of your career as an independent consultant to business. Yeah, yeah. You're sort of on the agency side, as it were, as yes. we might call it. So that gives you a degree of objectivity to yeah. to, to, to ascend, and, and, and as I say, independence. I'm just interested in that. Is that always a benefit or sometimes that's a bit <laughs> of a curse? I'm just I'm just wondering on your reflection. Yeah, that's a great, that. it's a good question. I, I think independence and objectivity is generally a good thing that, that, uh, and I've always been on the consultant side, but I've had long-standing clients. Right. And lots of clients have gone back to. Ah. And lots of clients where you can't simply give them the advice and run. Ah. And some clients where we've put in a colleague to help implement the strategy, who then I has see. to work out, hang on a second, how does this work out? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, objectivity, a good thing. But, you know, m- almost all projects are a partnership with clients. Yes. In you know, my career, I'm only as good as the client yes. allows me to be. Yes. And so I bring, you know, <laughs> uh, some independence and objectivity and, and several four-box models. Uh, <laughs> but the client brings an understanding of the culture, the politics, and the personalities. Yes, Which absolutely. I don't have. Yes, uh, yes. I can afford, but you know, I've often been hired to say things and then get fired. Yes. Which is you're brought in to say what no one else feels they can say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I can only think of a couple of occasions where they've taken the report. I think of one big global client where we wrote their global report uh, and the chairman hated it mm-hmm. because we said you yes. know, what no one else was saying. Yes. And ironically, one of the business units then phoned up and said, we hear that they suppressed your report. You must be good. Come and work for us. How interesting. Yeah, no, it was very good. Because you do, I've been in that situation where you're reporting back to a board or executive committee and you think, ah, oh, we're ahead of our time here. 
this is this is never going to happen. Yeah, true. They're just not ready for it. And then you think, well, maybe it might happen at some stage later down the line. Who knows? Sometimes you're brought back. Sometimes you never see them again. But then two or three years later, you found out eventually they got there. But but that's I think that's, that's dead right. We did. I did a, a project at the end of which the client went, "Wow, this is rocket science." And so we had to then start working out a kind of maturity model. How do you? Ah. So where are you now? Yes. And how do we get you to this spot? Yes. You know, with a kind of migratory path. Yes. And what are the steps we can take to get you there? Mm. Because we found by saying, look, you know, you should be doing this. They'll go, can't do that. Mm-hmm. We needed to have something that said, okay, well, look, here's the, the intermediate steps you can be taking. Yes. And that, rather than leaving them with a, you know, blueprint for the, for the 22nd century. Yeah, which... Help them get somewhere. Yeah, which is just scary. So... I know that you are probably asked a lot about your opinion of the state of the IC profession, looking back over your 40, did you say 43 years? Well, I've done 30 years in this. 30 years in this. But I am going to ask you that question. But before I do, I was thinking to myself, I was rereading your books, I was thinking you must have rubbed shoulders with so many CEOs and other business leaders over the years. And I just wondered what your reflection is on the state of business leadership. How has that evolved first? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, And and how how maybe does it still need to adapt and evolve? I think I feel sorry for leaders because it just gets more and more complicated. Yes. (laughs) You know, you're supposed to be charismatic. You're supposed to engage people. You're supposed to understand the challenges of diversity. You're supposed to understand all the, you know, people in your supply chain and how they... It's incredibly demanding, I think. Yes. Uh, And the big myth that we've had about leadership, which I was shocked by, uh, two things. I've seen great communicators, leaders who who stand up and think, wow, they are brilliant, get fired. Yes. Because the share price doesn't go up. Yes. You think, okay, well... You can be successful without being a great communicator. Equally, be a great communicator, not successful. So, that, you know, there's a balance. The, the, the real shocking thing is most leaders are introverts. Yes. And they're functional introverts. They're, te- they're promoted because they're technically good. Yes. A lot of them don't like people. Yes. And now they're being asked, go around and relate mm-hmm. to people yes. and talk to them. And I remember t- telling one chief executive, you've got to go around and do management by walking around. That was the big vogue. Yes. Go and talk to people. And he said, do I, what will I talk to them about? <laughs> and I said, we just walk up to them and say, hey, how's it going? And they might say, I've had a tough day. And you can say, why is that? So <laughs> they went, did it. We walked around and talked to people. And he came back and he said, I'm not doing that again. And I said, and he blamed me. Why did you tell me to do this? And I said, what, what happened? He said, I went and talked to them, as you suggested, and then they talked back. <laughs> they probably asked a question as well. I think he, he couldn't cope with it. I think he, would just, he was very good at, at broadcasting, not very good at, at listening. So the functional introverts, the, you know, what's been really interesting about leadership is you get different kinds of leaders. So you get, I mean, now you've got communication directors who become chief executives. So if you the the breakthrough for me was looking at a board and thinking, well, hang on a second, the HR person is empathetic yes. and, and ruthless. Absolutely. Uh, you, then you've got the marketing person who's very excitable and spirited. Yes. You've got the finance guy who is very introverted and systematic. And then you've got the boss who is, you know, JFDI. Yeah. And you're trying to communicate this. So, you know, uh, one of my breakthroughs, I, I did a presentation back to a chief executive who clearly hated me from the beginning. He was uh, was the finance director, thought all this people stuff was complete nonsense, knew that he had to pretend that he cared and clearly didn't. Right. 
But for, the lesson for me wasn't, you know, why is it these people don't listen to me and understand how brilliant I am and how we should be doing it? I realized he was listening to me like I was blarneying. You know, oh. I was just bleeding heart all over his desk. And so he was discounting what I was saying. And his question to me was, okay, Bill, if I do everything you've said and I put this money in uh, and I pay for this program, what's my payback period? Right, right. What's the return on investment? Yes. And I was absolutely stunned because I thought, I've no idea what, what, how to answer the question. And that the lesson for me was that you cannot keep simply preaching Mm. Let's be lovely to people and let's let's engage them. You've got to think of it from the systematic point of view, which is how do we use the people we've got to produce a better result? Mm. And I think the lesson I learned, um, you know, I was confronted by a, a, a finance director at a computer company we're working for. He said, you want to use our money to make you feel better. <laughs> and I thought it was quite harsh, but actually I thought he was right because that's about my values. You know, we want to engage people, people are at work, they want to contribute, we need to do this for them. And he was very much like, no, we need to screw more work out of them because we're paying them too much already and every survey they just keep complaining. Right. And that is, I think that's still a lesson because internal communicators are people people, God bless them. Yes. Which means I've had a great career with lovely, interesting people doing fantastic things and then going out for lovely drinks afterwards. It's been a a great thing to do. (laughs) The problem is we are talking to internal clients who aren't like that. Absolutely. Who discount and disregard a lot of what we're saying. You know, I when I trained in the States, I was trained by Californians, mm-hmm. and we all had a, a shared assumption of values about, you know, realising people's potential. And I had to come back and learn how to speak Glaswegian, mm. which was the, you know, look, <laughs> yeah. this isn't about holding hands in the sunshine. This yeah. is about focusing people on producing a result for the organisation. Mm. And I think yeah. that's a lesson, you know, I learned that we need to learn yeah. again. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the only bright sort of spot on the horizon might be that we're moving to a place now we'd like to think we might be moving to a place where more organizations are realizing that their competitive advantage probably does lie in the minds of their people yeah because so much can be replicated yeah but actually wisdom knowledge creativity that's much harder to replicate so i don't know whether you've noticed the conversation getting a little bit easier because leaders are recognising that. Oh, I think the, I think conversation got a lot easier. I mean, mm-hmm. it's the huge strides. I mean, it has become internal communication has become a profession. Mm. There are mature people in it. There are heads of internal communication are very good. It's been bad news for consultants because <laughs> they know, yes. they learn the lesson. Yes. They, they they're better than we are, so they don't they don't need quite so much strategic advice as before. So I think it has got a lot easier. What's been I mean, you're right. Two things have, have changed. Leaders have switched on communication is important. You won't really find a leader anymore who will say it's not important. Mm-hmm. They know it's usually important. I think the audience, employees have changed. The nature of employment has changed. Yes. The gig economy has changed. And I'll come back to that. Mm. Your point about competitive differentiation. Mm. Uh, th- there's always been this shift from you uh, with employees, you bought muscles. Yes. You said to people in the factory, pull this lever for eight hours a day and you get paid. Mm-hmm. Then we shifted to service in the 80s as a competitive differentiator mm-hmm. in which the shift went from 
to emotional labor, care for people, respond to people, give them great service. Then it shifted to intellectual labor, which is all about knowledge management and, and sharing. And now I think we've shifted to another stage, which has a lot to do with principles and values. Yes. I think people inside organizations don't simply want to think, I make a widget and it, it makes the world a better place. I think they start off with, I want to make a difference. Yes. And I've got a set of values I'm not willing to compromise. Mm-hmm. And so uh, differentiation has to do with, well, what's your stance on a, on the climate? What are you doing about that? Yes. What are you doing about diversity and inclusion? Mm-hmm. So what you're expected to do as an organisation, what your stance is, the issues affecting the brand have expanded in- incredibly. Yes. And that's in what it has become much more complicated. But if you start saying, well, differentiate, I mean, service was a differentiator. Yes. <laughs> and I remember... First Direct invented yes. telephone banking. Yes. Was proud for years of the fact it, it had invented telephone banking at a time everyone else doing internet banking. Yes. So the uh, you know your your differentiator. I think Jack D came back from a tour of the north and said, "When a northern landlady is going to realise orange juice is no longer a luxury starter." <laughs> And I thought that's exactly what you get trapped in, which is what differentiated you in the past is not competitive differentiation in the future. So you're constantly trying to do catch up. And so if you want employees who embody all those, who think those things themselves, they are going to be more challenging. They're mm-hmm. going to look for more information. They're not simply going to be willing to be spoon fed. Mm-hmm. If you don't engage with them, they'll engage with others yes. who understand you. So it is a, it is a more complex and demanding. Mm-hmm. So if you're saying, yeah, I we are, we are. Uh, our differentiation is we care we are thinking about issues we're contributing to the world we're making a difference we're uh, supporting people if you want if that's your claim Mm. then you've got to have people who are like that and what they need and what the game they will play has changed to give context to this and we've kind of touched on it already in terms of the gig economy i saw you make a keynote speech in 2018 at the institute of internal communication in birmingham and you laid out if you like the landscape and you said at the moment life is getting more and more complicated both for business and as a result for communicators We've touched on it a bit, but I'm interested in what you see are the key trends and forces in the labour market, in the workforce, in business in general, that mm. as internal communicators, we really need to understand. Well, I think the nature of employment has changed radically. Yes, <laughs> I mean, exactly. so, you know, we spent years telling people you can't have a job for life, and that's the expectation is completely gone. And if you look at, say, the gig economy, I mean, the Californians are arguing now about giving rights to Uber yes. drivers. So the whole debate about are you an employer, are you not? So organisations de-risked by pushing things out. So you had AA patrolmen, who we did lots of work for in the past, suddenly become independent franchisees. Right. The milkman became an independent franchisee. Yes. So you hang on a second. Well, people we've been used to on the are now... Self-employed. All the delivery drivers, yes. they're all self-employed. Mm-hmm. So the nature of are you employed by anybody, organisation de-risk it, push it out. If, if if someone's not productive, that's their problem now, it's not ours. Yes, yes. I think then then there's the gig economy, which I think is, is really a kind of extension of what we used to call portfolio career. Yes. Which is you're not going to have the same job for 25 years. And in fact, you're probably going to have to have three jobs simultaneously yes. to do things. So that that really starts uh, um, questioning what's the contract 
Yes. There was always a contract which is, you know, I give you loyalty, you give me security. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, what is the the contract now? What is the relationship? And I think people are much more, you know, we, are, we argue for years, should you call people employees or associates or mm-hmm. partners? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think people do see themselves much more in partnership. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was were talking to students who were, who were studying internal communication, and I was really surprised how transactional they were. They're very, they're very you know, what we would have called disloyal. You know, I, I'm going to work, I'm going to do 18 months here, then I'm going to move on, cash in my CV. So they're very much, you know, mm. I'm using, I'm jumping between employees. Yes, um, yes. So it's a bit like when someone asks you, do you have a customer loyalty card? And I will say, no, I have a customer promiscuity card. Which is the, the idea of if I shop somewhere else, I'm somehow betraying them. So, you know, there is a set of expectations yes. we have, you know, yes. which has shifted. So that I think that's changed a lot. That the, mm. I think that the, 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 the audience, as you said, people have paid for their education often. Mm. They're trying to get that back. They don't yes. feel they've been given anything. Mm. Uh, there's no, they're not necessarily going to have a home, never mind you know, they're yes. going home at five o'clock. There's the blurring of employment which is just employee hours. I saw French, you know, trying to legislate, Absolutely. don't read your emails. But if you work at home, and now, you know, with the virus going on, everyone's going to be working at home, you say, okay, well, look, it's 11 o'clock. I think I'll pop out to the shops. Yes. Uh, and then that's going to take me four to five minutes, which I will repay at the end of the day. Mm. Or, you know, tonight when the kids have gone to bed, I'll do that. So you start moving your working hours around. Then your organisation starts expecting you, you know, I used to have a boss phone me up at midnight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. it was seven o'clock in New York. Right. And he had time to think, I wonder what Bill's up to. And then he'd, <laughs> you know, and I'd literally have the, the the phone cord, it was then stretched across my wife's face in bed while I was updating him on, you know. So the employees then start thinking, well, wh- what are you doing? So we had a, one of the big four uh, who were clients and they, it was a nightmare <laughs> because they just kept going 24 hours a day. Yeah. So wow. the big boss would be on the beach uh, on her phone, uh, amending documents that we were doing, yes. and you had you know three different clients in each in each time zone, and version control got completely out of control, <laughs> <laughs> and everyone was just shouting you know twenty four hours a day. So you know, so I'm saying that the the expectation you know, the whole um, easily defined structure of expectation hours and contract, I think, has changed. Mm. For me, that really spotlights the issue about what is the value of an internal communicator? Yes. And I, you know, we may want to talk about channels, but the I- issue is understand the audience and what's going on with them. Right. And how they're going to respond. The big lesson I did learn from Burst Marstella, which was the people who had power understood the audience. Mm. The guys in media relations would say, you don't want to mess with the journalists. You know, they're tricky. I mean, so you need me to come with you to guide you through this because this guy will betray, you know, turn on you and stab you in the back. Yeah. So they would spread fear or, or manage risk, whatever you, whichever way you want to look at it. <laughs> and so it, for, it, for employees, no one thought there was a risk because you say, well, I'll just communicate with them and they'll do what they're told. Right. Say, well, that, what's actually happening is, I can we did work, the chief, global chief executive was communicating with this factory in Barcelona and it was like something from Faulty Towers. <laughs> because he won, the, it was just a classic, they sent the, they used email, he wrote in English, he oh. called himself by his first name oh. and he used baseball metaphors. Oh my goodness. And no one had a clue what this was about. <laughs> it's in your book actually. It, it, it was just, well, it was it. a fantastic, <laughs> I just thought, wow, this is, now, now what's really interesting about it is it's a comedy of errors. And I think that's really important, which is it was incredibly well-intentioned. 
Right, okay. And so much of the work comes across is really well-intentioned. They want to do the right things. They have an instinct. They just don't know how it translates. They don't know, how would I do that? Yes. And is it really useful for a Friday afternoon to be interrupted by a voice from God (laughs) somewhere (laughs) speaking incomprehensibly about, you know, an irrelevant subject? But it was well-intentioned. Yes, And that's pretty, I mean, I found that a lot, which Mm, is that it's mm. usually well-intentioned. So if you find you've got a global chief executive who's well-intentioned, You've got a regional chief executive who's also well-intentioned. Mm. You've got a business line chief executive who's well-intentioned. Mm. And you've got a factory manager who's well-intentioned. That's a cacophony <laughs> of very well-intentioned incoherence. Yes, I can imagine. Until someone comes in and sort of guides and facilitates them along. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you wrote your first book, Communicating Corporate Change, Is it really 24 years ago? That's what I worked out in a way. And then making the connection uh, more than a decade ago, it was 2008. On Twitter, I think it was David Wraith that asked this question. But what is your assessment of how far the discipline has matured? And we've touched on this already a little bit. And I'm also interested in those niggling frustrations that you must get occasionally where you think, gosh, really? Are we still having that conversation or that hang-up or that problem? Yes, that, that there's... Um, I mean, that, it is a good question. I remember at the end of that, the, the uh, conference presentation you talked about, someone asked that question, are you fed up and tired of preaching the same thing all the time? <laughs> and I said, no, I'm not. And I thought afterwards, well, am I? I th- things have matured. They, they, ha- they have moved. I mean, I go into an organisation where there's a team of internal communication people and they are smart, yes. they are energetic, they are well-intentioned. Most internal communication people want to make a difference. They see themselves as advocates of employees. They're enthusiastic. I've trained lots of them. And they you know, they share a frustration, which is we could be doing better. Yes. They're not doing as well in the organisation as they think they could. They mm-hmm. know they've got greater capacity. So I think that has shifted. Mm. I think the recognition of you know, that this is an important issue has shifted, if only because reputation is such a big issue. Yes. And we make our maxis, but the, the you know the wall the wall between internal and external communication I think has pretty much collapsed. Right. Where everyone's on social media, so you if you don't engage them, they'll just do it, do it themselves. Yes. So I, I think that the uh, you know organisations are realising often that the first audience now. This is going out to my former clients and Burst Mustella. The first audience you think about is the internal one, the yes. employees. Yes. So I think that has shifted. If you engage with leaders and say communication is important, the bad news is they may agree with you and say, yes, yes absolutely. <laughs> Get very enthusiastic and run around saying, let's do it, let's do it. Yes. And then saying to the internal communication people, I've already done the thinking. Mm-hmm. I know what's required. You just implement it. Yes, yes. And that's always been my argument about we need to shift from being pharmacists back to doctors, which is right. diagnosing, hang on, what's, what is the problem to which another roadshow is the solution? <laughs> so I, I think, you know, a, a, a bit of pushback. So I think that has shifted, I think shifted dramatically. You know, I think the challenges facing internal communicators have become greater. Right, okay. Uh, I mean, I hate to say that, but I think they have. I think the thing that hasn't changed much if I look at internal communication people, their greatest strength is their greatest weakness. Mm-hmm. Their greatest strength is their people people. Mm-hmm. They love people. They're empathetic. They understand the issues. They can understand the audience. They bring mm-hmm. all that to the table. The bad news is they're people pleasers. Right. The people who don't like people, non-people people, who push mm-hmm. back and say, we're not doing that. Mm-hmm. So you've got different internal clients 
Yes. You've got the, someone saying, I think communication is vital and people need to know about my special project to you know, conserve energy and turn off the lights. Let's, let's do a roadshow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you get enthusiasts who are you know, loose cannons. <laughs> yes. you, get, you, 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 know, you get the IT, global IT directors who've got a lot of money to spend and yeah. want to raise their profile and simply want an implementer. Yes. to get the posters made with mm-hmm. their, their face on them and then you get the you know the the, the finance directors are saying I don't what you know do we need to be doing this at all yes. so you have to deal with different clients mm. with different every time we've done a review internal communicators the, mm. the thing that shocked me was we did a review I remember there were 43 internal communicators in yep. this organization mm. Mm. Uh, everyone was very enthusiastic they got out and hired loads of people and then someone finally said what do they all do what do they all do and the one message everyone knew was there were 43 of them, which is why I remember it. <laughs> so when you spoke to the first director, he'd said, I just want someone to do posters, but yes. I've got this guy who keeps talking about culture right. and change. And yeah. then you spoke to another director who said, I need to make change and culture happen. I've got this person who's, who keeps arguing about where the apostrophes go. Yeah. So yeah. The, the, you know, the, the, it is uh, you know, unarticulated what the expectations are on, on each side. Mm. And I think we've still got the issue about people people who won't be assertive enough right okay and actually well hang on a second why are we doing this yes uh and if i go back to you know media relations people would be saying well hang on a second you can't do that because they'll wait down for it and that goes back to understanding the audience Mm -hmm. because when you say to clients you know who want to communicate something listen here's what's going to happen uh i mean i have the advantage of saying i've seen this happen yes when you say your communication, I know, I, we, we did one with a well-known car manufacturing company where the supply chain people who were all postgraduates were writing a newsletter <laughs> for the guys in the factory. And it was at you know, PhD level. Yes. And uh, the, the functional reading age in the factory was seven. And so they didn't think, oh, my communication not getting through. The factory guys thought they were complete idiots, mm. just confirm their suspicions of them. Yes. And it comes back to my, you know, do my English degree. One of the great lessons I learned inside organisations is people think in Anglo-Saxon. Yes. And they communicate in Latin, Latin. <laughs> uh, which you know, no one quite understands. And they say they don't understand it in the factory. Yeah. So I, you know, I think we still have that point. You know, for years we fought to get internal communication a place at the table. Yes, we fought the you fought the argument about this is an important area. Your entire you know change project is going to collapse and not reach benefits if you don't engage people properly. Mm. After a while, a kind of grudging respect and yes, fair enough, we'll get them in. The real challenge I think was not getting a place at the table. It was getting communicators able for the table. Yeah, I agree. Because when you got them there, mm, mm. you know, you know you had, with, with some notable exceptions, but, you know, you have people who would then start arguing where the apostrophe should go. Yeah, 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 And, exactly. you, you know, you'd be thinking, think, oh, Gordon Bennett, I got them in here. Yes. And now, and now the board's looking at me sideways. Um, yeah. You're making me reflect on early days. So uh, going back to 1990, 1995, inside a, inside a, a big bank, and that frustration that I had that people around me, particularly at a very senior level, just didn't get it. Mm-hmm. And 
that probably has changed, but I was coming from a place where it was seemed so obvious to me. Yeah. So what I wasn't doing was bring, bringing evidence into the room. Mm-hmm. I wasn't bringing the numbers. I wasn't bringing the measurement because it seemed so blindingly obvious. And I think that's possibly one of the things we let ourselves down in. If we walked in with more than an opinion, yeah. but an actually evidence for why we were right, we would have got further, faster, potentially. Well, you, well, if I go back to great lessons I have learned, I did a feedback, to go back to my chief executive, who was the finance guy, who just hated me and disregarded what I was saying and said, where's the trend data? And that was the lesson. I started going in and speaking Glaswegian, which is, here's the numbers. That My proposition to leaders is not, you know, communication's poor, you need to improve it. It's always poor. Because mm. the expectations change. Yes. You know, we've we've done, you know, <laughs> I've had clients say, I've done everything you've said and spent all the money. And the surveys come back and said, they're unhappy, just but just for a different reason. <laughs> yes. And that's absolutely right, which yeah. I keep saying, don't ask what you can do for your, for your employees. Ask rather what they can do for you. Yes. So yes. if you go back in and say, listen, it's not the employee's problem. Because the HR people come in and say, we've done a survey, people are unhappy, they say communication's poor, and you, know, you see these leaders heave a sigh and go, okay, well, I guess we have to do something, mm-hmm. brackets. We go in and say, you'll never make them happy. Right. All that We've done 25 years of surveys, you're not going to make them happy, mm. don't make that your, your, your focus. Don't make engagement, and we'll come back to that, yes. don't make engagement your focus. Start off with, what do you need to, to do for you? And if you're speaking to a Glaswegian, you say... How much more work do you need to screw out of these people? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so when we trained leaders in communication, they hated us because they assumed they were already great communicators. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, I think my mother-in-law you know, gave my wife advice when we got married, which was never criticise your husband for either his lovemaking or his driving. <laughs> but if you have to criticise him for anything, never criticise his driving. <laughs> And it's the same thing about leaders, which is you don't, you can't criticise their communication. But when we went back and said, listen, do you want to really bend people to your will and get them to meet your objectives? They would go, yes. And, right. you, you know, it's the same thing. Yeah. But they would see that it was in their interests. They weren't, communication wasn't a tax imposed on them. Yes. To keep employees you know, happy, which was a lost cause anyway. Yes. I mean, I think I've, ha- I've had a mantra for years, which is, let's not fix communication problems. Let's fix business problems yeah. with communication. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> let's talk a little bit about language and meaning. Um, we've talked a little bit about Latin. Yeah, yeah. And how we shouldn't really use that. We should use the Anglo-Saxon. You've said that employees are motivated by clarity. And our job as communicators is to help leaders crystallise their thinking. Now, the reason I'm asking you this is that the state of the sector 2020 has just come out and we hear that information overload and noise, you know, the workplace is begetting noisier and noisier. That need to be clear, to crystallise, to prioritise the message, I'm guessing is getting even more important yeah. to make strategy genuinely meaningful. Yeah. The original purpose of, of, of your work is ever more important would yeah, you yeah. say yes yeah yeah well there's two bits in that i think there's meaning mm-hmm. you know what does this thing mean and there's being meaningful and meaningful i think is is become much bigger issue because of simply the expectations of employees about what we all should be doing their contribution to the world and society and what the organization is responsible for so i think that's a big issue meaning i mean i 
you know, part of doing this job has been quite fun because sometimes it's absurd. <laughs> it, it, it's a comedy of errors, which you, you know, uh, to which I've contributed, to be fair. <laughs> when I was at Bursa Marstella, I said, we go off for these board meetings, usually at the weekend. And you'd say to the client, what are you trying to achieve? And they'd say, get them to, to sell more. And you'd say, right, so what you're really saying is accelerate the proactivity of the customer-centric interface. And they go, oh, do, do we? Uh, oh, yeah, fine. That, that sounds good. Pay the man. They, and so we just, and then no one knew what on earth we were talking about. So we poshed it up. Yeah. yeah. And it, I think one of the problems we have as communicators is, you know, I've done English. I've got a qualification. I can afford to sound stupid. Yeah. I don't worry about dumbing down. Short and sticky gets the message across. Whatever gets remembered gets repeated. Yes. What gets repeated gets reinforced. Yes. The number of people who stumble out of a strategic conference and they can't remember, you say, what is the strategy? I have a chief executive say, how can you have run a survey saying no one understands the strategy when we spent a fortune telling them the strategy? And you go back and look at the 85 slides. PowerPoint slides yeah. that no one can remember. Mm. Mm, uh, mm. And so meaning is, I mean, it starts, the chain of meaning, it, it breaks very close to the top. Yes. Because, um, you know, I tell the story against myself about my communication with my daughters, because the, um, which is a lesson I learned, which is my wife always says, if you're such a communication expert, why are you so bad at it? <laughs> the, um, but, I, you know, one of the lessons I learned about change is I would get out the shower and there'd be no towel. <laughs> You know, and I'd open the cupboard and the towels. And that's because my one of my daughters would have taken three towels, wrapped in her hair around the side and, and left me naked and shivering in the in the bathroom. And I would say to her, you know, why can't you be more considerate? So she would look a bit abashed. And then later on, she would come into the room with a cup of tea and give me a cup of tea. And I would say, okay, thank you very much. Then it took me a long time to realise I was translating no bloody towels mm -hmm. into lack of consideration Mm. giving a message be considerate, which she translated the action of tea-making. Am I yes. making sense? Yeah, you absolutely are. So the chain of meaning I destroyed very early on in the process. Yes. And so when you look at leaders, and you get leaders on a flip chart and say, what do you want people to do? They would say, shift the paradigm. Mm. So mm. Where, 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 where do you need it shifted to? <laughs> you know, we need them to buy in. To what? To what? We need to get some traction. Uh, and we need to get more granular. And, and, or this is language which means nothing. <laughs> To anybody, because when you, you know, you go into a conference, you say, guys, we've got to be more granular and, and, and you know, get the low-hanging fruit. Yes, exactly. We just get lost in a metaphor. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's the same thing with cascade. Yes. Let's cascade this. Cascade is a metaphor that we've all been captured by mm. because there is no gravitational pull dragging mm. communication down. Mm, that's you know, right. It, it's, I'm going to keep saying to clients, listen, it's not a cascade. You are rolling a boulder up a hill. <laughs> This is getting more difficult. This is the myth of Sisyphus. You know, you're pushing. This up. You know, if you're going to get, if you're going to use a metaphor, let's use a, the right metaphor. Yes, you're speaking to someone who wrote a book from cascade to conversation, and I should have but quoted you up from. But I remember uh, referring to that during my speech, yes, that speech, did. and yes. saying it was very good. It was exactly what we needed, which is it isn't. There's not. There isn't a cascade. It's, it's not a, a myth. Cascade. It's absolute myth. You talked about meaningful. So you said there's yes. a difference between meaning and meaningful. Yeah. So meaning is simply saying to the the authors who's doing this, what are you trying to achieve? What's the outcome you want? Let me get your thinking right. Yes, yes. And that, I mean, that, that has been incredibly successful and incredibly popular. Mm. 
Mm. Because the great thing is we get leads around a flip chart. They're talking to each other. Mm. So you can get them to sell more. Then they turn to the flip chart and write proactivity of the customer-centric interface. Yes. So when you point out, you know, when you talk to each other normally, yeah. you're using vivid language and metaphors. Yes. But when you start to, quote, communicate, you suck all the interest and enthusiasm out of it and turn it into abstract terms that no one's going to you know, translate properly. They laugh and yeah. say, yeah, you're absolutely right. They laugh at themselves. It is easy to make change happen when they, they, you're doing it lightheartedly. Yes, yes. And if you're, you're wagging a finger at them reprovingly. Quite, quite. There's a wonderful line in your book about this where you talk about language and you exactly say that. You say, you know, we, we, we write in Latin for audiences that need Anglo-Saxon and you contrast that with trade unions. And you yeah, say yeah. there's a trade union message that you remember, which is that deal's got more strings than the, the Philharmonic <laughs> Orchestra. And I, I laughed out loud. I was in the bath reading this. I laughed out loud. I thought, that's so true. Because we, we, we have a highly unionised workforce and one of our clients. And they do. They speak in that very plain, no-nonsense, matey language. And it cuts through. Yeah. It's just... So get back... I mean, so I think, you know, even though I did... English, I mean, I come from Birmingham and I worked in the car factory and the tyre factories and the, the silencer factories, so I knew what it, I knew what they did. You know, the first lesson I got when I went to a car factory, they took me to the toilets and said, if you're going to steal anything, put, the, put it down your trousers. Oh if God. you're going to go to sleep, do in the toilets, don't embarrass your supervisor. They told me what working life was like right. and it wasn't remotely what the managers thought it was like. Right, right, okay. And I, I thought that... If we, if if you say to uh, you know a first line supervisor or manager, you need to communicate. They think, oh my lord. If you say you need to talk to your guys, yes, they go, fair enough, I can yes. do that. There's a great film. I don't know if it's a Ken Loach film. It's called The Navigators, oh. and it's about the privatisation of the railways. Uh-huh. And there's a magic scene where the supervisor is doing a team briefing uh, in a tea room, and he's saying, come on lads, I need to tell you what my vision is. And uh, our mission, we've got a mission statement here. Don't laugh, don't laugh, calm down. And you, you just see that the poor guy is having the mitt taken out of him blind yeah. while he's trying to talk in a way that's completely unnatural. Yes. And so the, the lesson you know, you talk to leads and say, listen, when you're talking to people informally, you are more powerful and influential than when you stand up on a stage with PowerPoint because more and more employees are discounting Right. For, for, for lack of credibility. So the minute you still go into Latin, they'll go, well, this is complete nonsense. Isn't it? Yes. Are you going to shut the place down? We currently have, have no plans to accelerate the optimization, And they all go, all right, fair enough. Yes. <laughs> That's a yes then, is it? Yes. <laughs> Where, you know, at, at some point, a leader, you know, when you're doing unpopular change things and people you have a relationship with say to you, come on, Bill, are you, do you believe this is really the right thing to do? At some point, you have to say, I do think so. You know, weighing it all up, yes. it's not the best thing to do, but, you know, you, you have got to put yourself into it. Mm, and mm. you can't do that with formal language Absolutely. because it distances you and makes you incredible. When we talk about meaningful, I was I was quite keen to get your reflection on this rise. I think it's fair to say it has been a rise of employee activism yeah. where employees are speaking up. I mean, they're even walking out in protest over the way their organisations are responding or handling certain sensitive issues. And I wonder what your reflection on employee activism was and how 
leaders and we as communicators could possibly mitigate the risk of activism if that's something we should even be doing. But anyway, I'm interested in reflection on that. I, I don't think it's a risk. So we can back to the bit. I think employee activism is one facet of a uh, employee's much greater drive for purpose. Yes. Which is they want to have a purpose. They have a set of values, which they are less willing, I think, to compromise. Uh, and it's the flip side of, I may not be in this job forever. It could be, well, I might walk out if it doesn't suit. I need to be in an organisation with which I'm aligned. Yes. This is more of a partnership. Mm. I'm not willing to you know, compromise or park my values to get on with the job. Mm. Mm. Uh, and I think activism is just one facet of saying, hang on a second, we do not agree. So if you go back to the employer and you say, well, hang on a second, what are you not agreeing with? Well, I'm not agreeing with the fact that if we would go way down the supply chain, you know, we are you know, having eight-year-old kids yeah. sew our garments. Yes. And so there's a much greater drive for sustainability. There's a much greater drive for social responsibility. And I think the employees are much more aware now, and it is, I think, a generational thing, of social justice. Yes, yes. So they want purpose. They've got a strong sense of values, and they want to contribute in some way to social justice, a much greater sense of what's fair and just. Yes. Uh, and the big shift has gone from simply, you know, look at diversity. Yes. So you know, with a few years back, diversity was make sure when you have a brochure that mm-hmm. you've got a representative mm-hmm. bunch of people. So you had to try and work out a matrix of, can mm-hmm. I have an Asian woman? And mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Now it's not a question of... You know, tokenism or representation. It's really about inclusion and celebration and yes. what, what are you doing about this? Yes. And I think, I think the uh, go back to your um, competitive differentiation, I think the quest for that is going to keep moving further and further out. How do you, how do you distinguish right. yourself? And I think it's got more to do with values yes. and contribution almost than the product itself. Right, yes. Then you've got, so you've got that differentiator, you've got consumers saying, yes. well, hang on a second, Yes. I, I'm much more demanding about who I want to be associated with exactly. as a brand. Exactly, yes. And you've got, you know, employees, whatever you're going to call them, have a strong sense of social justice, contribution, and transparency. Mm. So mm. the idea that, I mean, go back to my birth Marstella days, what was very funny is media training. I'd watch my media training colleagues Shutting down the conversation. Yes. You know, make your three key points. Go. <laughs> and then we were training managers to open up the conversation. Yes, yes. So we were encouraging them, get them to ask you the tough questions, because if you don't, they'll simply talk about it in the bar afterwards. Mm. Get it in the room. Yes. And you can see these two trends going in opposite directions. Mm, mm, uh, mm. But, but I think now, especially with, the, with social media, is if you don't engage realistically and honestly with the issues it'll simply move on without you so the lesson really for organizations is to make sure you know the feeling on the ground what your people really do care about how they feel about certain issues it goes back to that to that listening and knowing the audience point you mentioned earlier doesn't it well let me ask you this because we've always had feedback loops Mm -hmm. the issue is what happens when the feedback gets to the boardroom well, what do you do with the feedback? Because yeah. you've always had people saying, here's what I think. Mm-hmm. It's what's the response to that? Mm-hmm. So I think, yes, you do need to know attitudes, but then you've got to, if you're responding to that as a leader, you've really got to re-examine your own attitudes. Mm-hmm. So when my daughters say to me, hang on, you can't say that, mm-hmm. I've got to try and work out, hang on, 
do I have an outdated set of values? Yes. Do Am I seeing things, you know, if I'm looking back at the 1970s and how on earth they got away with it, do I share in some way attitudes I deplore? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you've got to have leaders who are actually quite courageous. Yes. To say, you know, this is ridiculous, this is millennial nonsense. So hang on a second, this is fair, this is a reasonable question, how do I respond to that? Yes, yes. And I, I think it's, it's the leader's that's where the challenge is going to be. Not that I mean, the feedback's going to be make sure you've got your finger on the pulse. But how do leaders respond to what they're told? Mm. And I think that's where the challenge is. So as commu- go back to you saying how to communicate and mitigate the risk. I think communication helping leaders understand what the issues are and the strength of the issues and then possible responses to them. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. you're likely to get a first pushback. You, you, you've had similar experience, I'm sure, but I've seen feedback sessions where the charismatic chief executive starts off by saying, someone says, why don't we have enough paper clips? He says, I believe every person is entitled to their own paper clip and there should be paper clips for everybody. I, and it's I, I, I. And think, okay, they first say, well, hang on a second, why are we shortchanging customers on the service? And they'll shift to we. Well, we believe this mm. is the best way of doing things, the best balance between cost and you know, service. Mm. And then when they say, yeah, but hang on a second, we've, old age pensioners are dying because of what we yes. do. They'll suddenly say, the organisation feels... <laughs> And it's very interesting to watch how they respond to the feedback because there is a defensiveness in mm. uh, in dealing with feedback because mm. it's usually, it's either anodyne, in which case fine, mm. or check, you know, the vending machines aren't great, we can handle that, or it's quite challenging. It is, yes. And so often you're training leaders not to react yes. because their first reaction is defensive. Absolutely. And to use power. Yes. And the big change uh, we're going to have, the challenge, is the power shift because when you start saying an organisation, hang on, we've got a very complex market, where a, a huge amount of issues got to deal with in public affairs, and we've got employees who are out on the streets saying that we're deeply sexist and not promoting enough people. Mm. You know, th- those are huge challenges mm. that you're going to have to respond to, and that means I think communicators have to coach leaders mm. in just sorting through their responses mm. and sorting out which ones are you know, legitimate, which ones are a hangover, mm. which because. You know, I, I keep saying to my daughters, I am less racist, sexist, and ageist than my parents. Yes. And I'm certainly more ageist, sexist, racist than my daughters. Yes. So yes. You, we're all going through that transition and that shift. And that means you do have to examine, you know, when it comes to managing change, the first mm. change is yourself. It, it, it is interesting feedback, isn't it? I remember one chief executive who was rare because she let the difficult conversation roll and didn't close it down and I was quite surprised and and there's a I think it's Aristotle I'm going to quote I have quote Aristotle wrongly it's going to be so embarrassing but it's something like you can entertain an idea you don't have to agree with it yeah. there, there is a there is a point at which I think you have to show people that they've been heard and properly understand what they're saying that doesn't mean you change everything to their point of view mm-hmm. and but there is a point around that isn't it to actually make yeah. people feel like they've genuinely had a voice and that you've entertained the thought is so important in all of this we don't do that enough i don't think well we you know when we, we train managers and the thing that managers fear when they're talking to people, I mean, apart from public speaking itself, they also fear either um, the, the loudmouth is going to give them a hard time mm. or silence. 
mm-hmm. you know, yeah. from, their, from their colleagues. Yeah. And you're encouraging them and giving them skills to start a conversation, going back to your point about conversations, yes. to, get the, to open the conversation, yes. to invite things that they don't want to hear or yes. they don't know quite how to handle Yes. And and that's what it takes. If people if are going to feel they're listened to, you've got to get them talking. Yes. And you've got to keep quiet and let yes. it let and it run. Let it roll. Yeah. And not feel you're losing control or losing status or you have to know all the answers or how dare they challenge you. Yeah, no. And that's, that's why the power thing, I think, will shift. But it's actually a, a really fundamental shift. If you wake up in the morning and you think, I've got my shareholders, I've got the external media uh, environment, I've got maybe my analysts who are influencing my shareholders, because that's often an interesting dynamic. And then I've got my body of employees who may be on side today about this, or they may not be. You know, I mean, this is a complete, I was going to say, a different paradigm shift and then shoot myself in the head. But anyway, you know what I mean? <laughs> There's one point about that, which is when you look at organisations, you're trying to do with shareholders and customers and employees. Basically, you're trying Mm. to balance those three Mm. off. And what's very interesting is you go down through organisation, most employees choose two out of three. They don't choose three. So if you're the senior level, you choose customers and shareholders. If you're at more junior level, you choose customers and employees. Yes. And we stumbled across this. We did a survey in which we had you know, five objectives of the organisation, you know, shareholder value and treat. And we just asked people to rank them in order of priority. And it was astonishing because when it came back, it was so beautifully stratified really? that those at the top were like shareholders, customers. Those at the bottom were like, we should be nice to each other and be nice to those lovely customers and we don't need to make any money. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking at, at you know, how communication is refracted through those levels... Mm. You're, you don't have the same set of values. So when no. you're having a conversation, you're saying, here's what we're doing, and someone says, that's very unkind to the poor old ladies, then you have to say, okay, well, let's just talk that through. Yes, yes. <laughs> because you can't simply say, right, fine, well, we'll change that again. No. So no. It, you know, it is a, a process of debate and sometimes of education. And sharing different points of view and recognising that, we have many different stakeholders to face off to and keep happy. And that, and it's a balancing act. Let's talk a little bit about channels. I'm, I'm conscious of time. I read, again, in researching for this episode, that you had a client in the early days who wanted his people to be more entrepreneurial and mm. creative. But his main channel at the time was a tannoy. Yes. And that made me <laughs> smile. That made me smile. Today, we sit here, 2020, with a vast array of channels at our fingertips. I just wonder what your observations are on the current sort of channel landscape and the impact that might be having on us as as professionals. The clients tend to have great ambitions and objectives. So I do remember the Tano one, but equally I remember the chief executive of an insurance company who was saying to his leaders, you've got to be entrepreneurial and dynamic and creative and self-starting and agile. Mm-hmm. And, we were, you know, he was on stage with a PowerPoint presentation in a darkened theatre of 150 people. <laughs> and you thought, this poor guy... Mm. is completely thwarted mm. by the channel, the room. Exactly. You know, they're all sitting there in the dark writing, I must be dynamic and creative. <laughs> yeah. So if I go back to, I mean, the whole point about communication escalator was, look, you know, your ambitions are high yes. and your capability is low. <laughs> so there's a disconnect here. So we need to look at you know, how we do those jobs for you and who we do them for. Uh, so I look at a child, especially with social media, uh, and I was listening to B&Q and Yammer, which I thought was very good. Yes. Because uh, it rang very true with my experience, which is IT people 
driving social media platforms and then thinking, why are we doing this again? Yes. Uh, which I thought was very true. So I think I'm slightly jaundiced about channels. Right, OK. Uh, only because the history of channels has been... Um, no one, no one fights the internal communication department for those channels. There's always been a turf battle about who runs internal communication, whether it's you know, media relations or HR. or There's always that argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no one wants the channels ah. because it's a bit like sending your laundry out. It's like, fine, you run the channels, we'll just tell you what to put in them. Mm-hmm. So in a kind of defensive mode communicate say well great we own the channels right that gives us and means we control access to them yes and now you've got uh, a lot more so many channels i think was one of the quotes i heard which i thought was right that's right on the one hand this is great because it gives everyone a voice mm-hmm. uh, i remember years ago when we worked with apple they had the software called rumor in which it basically put the grapevine on the screen Fantastic. And it was great. And yeah. so you think this is brilliant because it's it's the, the line between informal communication and formal communication is blurred. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what it, it, social media is. It is giving you a voice. The bad news is two things happen. Leaders all say, oh, we want one. <laughs> yes. I don't know what it is. <laughs> so the number of clients said to me, we keep hiring digital communications people. They're the most awkward people you can get. And they're the most awkward because they say things like, why? Yes. Or what are you trying to achieve? It's like, no, it doesn't matter. Get me one. Yes. You know, I'll have it now. So I think there's the leaders who are intoxicated by the idea of of channel. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have seen some absurd versions of that. But equally, it's the communicators who simply say, yes, you know, yeah. I've, got, I've got a farm of channels here. Yes. Uh, often doing the same thing. Yes. So they compete. They're just they're just basically cannibalizing one yep. channel with another. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and for years, the the you know we've been this kind of channel mania, which is something new comes along. And go, oh, this yeah. is great. Like, you know, I hate to say this, but I mean when the facts arrived, it's like oh, <laughs> this is amazing. It does that. This, wow. This is, we can have universal domination with this. <laughs> uh, and so each channel that's come along, we've all thought, oh, this is amazing. We can be the experts in the channel. Right. And, you know, we do need expertise in channels. I'm not decrying that. But that means that we focus too much on the vehicles and not the destination. Yeah. Uh, and, it, you know, I go back to your question about the state of the, the profession. Having trained lots of communicators, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we all say, you know, if only they listened to us, we could do so much more. They've got this wrong. Why do they keep insisting on doing this? But equally, some of the wounds we have are self-inflicted. Yes. Because sometimes you think, oh, stuff it. You know, you want one, I'll get one. You know, yeah. Yeah. you'll often have heads of internal communication saying, well, why am I raising these issues when no one's asking about it? Ah. So, you know, no one's asked me to challenge them. Yes. So if we simply comply and have a lovely suite of the channels, we'll be fine. We, I, went, uh, I was speaking at a conference where there was kind of best-in-practice presentation for, uh, from an organisation. They did a fantastic presentation. There was kind of, this is the state of the art of channels. And I remember just thinking, I remember asking them afterwards, you, you branded all the channels the same. They're all kind of similar things, mm. uh, which is, for me is a bit of a danger signal. It's like mm. you're trying to remarket these channels. Mm. A few weeks later, that, in fact, the person who did the presentation phoned up and said, we're going to do a review of internal communication. Can you come in and do it? So we, you know, my team went in and did it. Mm. Uh, and it was shocking. Because the channels were fabulous, you know, state of the art, beautifully burnished, doing everything he possibly could. And the chief executive was furious. 
because it was you know it was literally like having a fleet of beautifully shiny channels that weren't actually getting anyone anywhere. Forty three communicators working together to destroy value. Yes, and that head of internal communication didn't keep their job mm. because they mm. didn't have a connection with the the board and the strategy. Mm. But they did have a be- and so you know judged from the internal communication departments they look fabulous. Yes. Judged from the boardroom and the uh, head of inter- head of communication they didn't. Am I making sense? It, and it does. It absolutely. It comes back to that point about what's the commercial value. You know how is this driving my business forward? If I want to sell more widgets, how's that helping? Yeah. It can't just look pretty on the sidelines because it starts to look pretty and also costly or a waste of people's time and attention so yeah and in that organization they were trying to double the share price by cross-selling to their uh, customer base and they put in a huge project to put in you know crm customer relationship management Mm -hmm. there was a fantastic job for internal communication yeah that's the job yeah yeah but it wasn't doing it no again not fixing the problem that needs fixing so there's a few questions here i have to ask you i just wonder was there a moment, was there a point when you realised that you were having such a profound impact on an entire profession? I, I wouldn't say profound, <laughs> any kind of impact at all. Yes, there was. I mean, I was going to a conference, I was waiting to speak and someone got up before me and I, I saw the number of presentations that all had the communication escalator in. <laughs> They all called something different, you know, the communication stepladder or the all slightly tweaked with no attribution. No, it's a, okay. there's an attribution on the web and it's your name is spelt wrongly. So yeah, you know, and I just thought, hang on a second, this communication escalator is everywhere. Yes. And um, that's when I thought, well, at least that idea has, has got through. I, I'm hoping, you know, if I look at people, I mean, I'm part of a group of people, a tradition, I think, starting with Roger Dupree. Yes. And, you know, Sue Dewhurst and Liam Fitzpatrick. You know, we're all kind of doing the same debate. It's just moving on, you know, year by year. I'd say that my, uh, what I've done is um, articulate things that people have already suspected. Right, OK. I think that it's the shock of recognition, not revelation. <laughs> and I can't remember Pope's, you know, uh, uh, the poet Pope, rather, <laughs> um, definition of wit, which is you know, what often was thought but ne'er so well expressed. And I think that's pretty much what I've done, which is mm. reduce the complexity of life to a four-box model. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just I would defend you there by saying a few things. One is that to reduce it, you have to ask the seemingly stupid question, which actually is the <laughs> deepest question. Yes, I love the idea of seemingly stupid. Stu- that's about actually stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? You walk into an organisation, you know nothing about it at that point, unless you've done a little bit of research. It's easier now than it used to be when I first started because of the web. But you can genuinely ask the obvious question, yeah. which often is the most important question that for whatever reason, mm-hmm. no one wants to address or answer. Mm-hmm. And then you take the 85 deck with 93 bullet points on each slide, which I often think has been created because people at a senior level don't want to prioritise. Mm. They don't want to say, well, actually, it's this one thing because mm. I'm safer if I say it's this 19th mm-hmm. thing. And what you're doing, actually, is saying, no, let's simplify, mm-hmm. let's make sense of it, let's come back to a core principle and something I can communicate. So, yeah, it takes courage, actually, to do that as well, I think. You've obviously had that in your career. Well, I mean, one of the things I've been able to say is, you know, someone talk about what we're trying to do, and you say, can I just argue with you for a minute? To which the only answer really is, okay. Because <laughs> they say no. 
And then you say, so just for, you know, that, that allows you to challenge in a nice way. Yes, yes. Uh, and I think challenging in a nice way is the real challenge we've got. Right, okay. Because you've got, I mean, when you train people, they say, we, you say, oh, you should challenge. They go, absolutely, I'm, I'm going to take them on. Go, Hang on, slow down. So being able to ask questions where the, the, the client says, oh, actually, that's quite a good question. I hadn't thought of it like that. Mm. Where they see the questioning as a service that helps them crystallise their thinking. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, an upstart coming in here. I know. There's a thin line between thinking, oh, that's very incisive and thoughtful, to you clearly are clueless and have no idea about our, in, about our industry. Well, you, you, you said earlier that you, you, you feel sorry for leaders because... Um, there's so much on their plate, and they have to have such broad shoulders. I was just, I was, as you were saying, I was reflecting on being with a, with a, a, a fairly young client in a in a new job where they have to prove themselves, and I was thinking, hmm, I wanted to send her a book that's by um, Edgar Sheen called Humble Inquiry, mm-hmm. but there's a way of challenging and getting someone to a certain point that takes on board all their baggage and problems. Do you know what? It's exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a constructive challenge. Yes, it is a challenge, but it recognises everything else that might be going on with them as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that, that's so important, actually. Yeah, I think you're right. A, yeah. a, a chief executive once said to me at the end of my impassioned presentation, he said, OK, tell you what, stay on. We've got someone else coming on now. You come and sit on our side of the table. And then I watched each presentation coming in where each presenter impassionedly said, you've got to do this. Yeah. So I think being, a, a, you know, the leader seeing you on their side. Yes. Uh, is really important, that you're seeing it from their point of view and their dilemmas. And dilemma, I think, is incredibly important. Yes. Because it's, it is tough. It to, is. You said it's a balancing act. It's, it's tough to do the balancing act. Yes. It seems to me in reading your books and articles, that you have consistently been ahead of the game. So, I mean, for example, I read a blog you wrote in 2012 where you talk about the growing importance of integrating internal and external comms. Mm. And now we're all talking about that mm. blurring line. You said the wall crumbling yeah. in between the two. What's the secret of being far-sighted? Do you just have to be naturally curious but there must be a way, uh, a mechanism. Is there a tactic you have for being able to think ahead and solving the next problem? No. <laughs> no I think, you know, how, I wouldn't say I was far-sighted. I'd say a, a statement of the lead and obvious. But the, you know, how do you see things happening? Um, the, the blurring of the line and the intricate. If you look at the, the turf war about who owns internal communication, uh, you you have a client saying, "Hang on, there's a battle going on at board level." Uh, if I talked about the review we did, where the the head of left, they transferred responsibility from communication to HR. Right, and that's a, that's a battle that goes on all yes. the time. So we did a lot of work to say, "Okay, look, HR, and what's the advantage of each?" Because mm-hmm. we were asked to adjudicate, and you say, "Okay, look, corporate comms, what are they good at? They're good at understanding an audience. They're good at crafting messages." They're good at getting the message across. What are HR good at? They're good at leadership frameworks, at competency frameworks, at surveys and rewards. If you can put this together, yes. it's a, it's a, you know, if you get a partnership, it would work. But in the, the corporate comms side of the war, I noticed that internal communication, the exasperation with it often, yes. the responsibility has been handed to the media, the head of media. 
because the head of media had a good reputation with the boss. Yes. They'd done a good job. And so they kind of, you know, the, the, the MD would say, who will rid me of this troublesome internal yes. communication? Give it to the media guys. Yeah. And they would come in and say, right. So there is a, I think they do need to be integrated, but it doesn't yes. mean you apply the media discipline. To, exactly. If I go back to Bursa Marstella, you don't apply media relations to internal communication. Yeah. But you'd say, well, look, if, if reputation is important, increasingly important to brand and to a license to operate, and employees are more influential, if you look at, at um, Edelman's trust barometer, Absolutely. It, it increasingly it's the employee who's more credible. Yes. And so they need to be your advocates and ambassadors. Yes. So it becomes more important to align internal and external. And you yes. can see if, if you follow it. I think if you go back to what's the tactic, the tactic is follow the logic of the argument. Right. So if you say employees are more powerful for reputation building yeah. than are publications, yes. you then start, fine, then we do need to be aligned with what we're saying externally, mm. but we do need to make sure our employees, one, believe that our story. Yeah. But I think more important now, to defend, to be advocates, yes. isn't simply to be cheerleaders. No. You'd go around saying, we are fabulous and we're helping everybody. I think the real problem you have is, well, hang on a second, you're not helping everybody because you're destroying the third world with your deforestation. Mm. Well, how do you d- defend that? And that's the argument you get much more now. Mm. Advocacy isn't, as I said, isn't about cheerleading. It's about you know, being able to explain what's going on. Yes. And I think that means you need to really equip employees much more than uh, than before because mm. you're they've got a job externally and it, it's the equivalent for citizen journalists. Yes. So that means I think you, the, you, you can see the the, um, the wall is falling. But, but it came from two things. One, r- media arguing we should be in charge of this and trying to work out, okay, well, to what extent? Mm. And then the other one, the big shift for me, was um, the Gate Gourmet Strike BA. Oh. So I think we were doing work at BA at the time. Gate Gourmet, who provided the foods, went on strike. Yes. They fired loads of people. And the baggage handlers, who were married to a lot of people at Gate Gourmet, I see. dragged themselves into the, you know, poor old BA had to put up with a strike, which had nothing to do with them, really. Yeah. But what's fascinating is Gate Gourmet fired people like it was the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And when they got them together in the in the big hall and kind of announced it, mm-hmm. and you think, wow, this... So in the you know, 1980s, we'd have been training employees that when they left, you know, having been fired, when they left the, the, the factory gates yes. and they bumped into journalists outside, they would, please God, say, you know, we fully understand the economic pressures we're under. Yeah. We've been treated very fairly and mm-hmm. we're happy to go. Yeah. Of course, I'd never say that, but you pray for that. Yes. What happened was at the back of the room, someone got their phone out mm. and filmed it and they uploaded it. And yeah. that was the end of, you know, you, you didn't have an inside the factory gates secrecy no. with an external world. It just collapsed at that point. There's a great episode of The West Wing where Josh gets into trouble because he's photographed doing something that's inappropriate. Oh, and yes. he complains and says, I didn't see any photographers. And CJ says to him, did you see anyone with a phone? <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly the same, same yes, point. Yes, I mean, Google had an issue. I, I, I spoke about this at the CRPR conference where they were talking about Dragonfly, which is this specially censored search engine for China. And somebody in the room was live sending messages to a New York Times journalist who was just then repeating that on Twitter. 
So as it was being said in the room, in this closed town hall about a very sensitive issue, yeah. all of this was just suddenly being made public. Now, when they discovered someone in the room, probably a communicator thought, hang on a minute, we're leaking. Mm. The whole conversation mm. was closed down, but that really annoyed everyone in the room. It really annoyed the audience because mm. they were like, hang on a minute, can't we now have a conversation internally in confidence we live in a very weird world. Oh, and that that uh, IOIC conference that we were both at. Yes. I mean, I was much more because people were tweeting while I was speaking, and you know, I tend to tell stories and anecdotes as I go. I was much more mm. careful mm. about mm. what I would and wouldn't say than yes. I might otherwise have been. Yes. Yes. That you're almost self-censoring. You are self-censoring. Yeah. Absolutely. One of the things I love asking to people who have inspired others, because mm. I have this theory you can't be inspiring unless you feel inspired, is what or who has been your inspiration throughout your career? Yeah, I think I'm part of a conversation that's been going on for years. So Roger Dupree, you know, it starts this, uh, and I think he's the godfather of internal communication. Uh, and he starts the whole debate about we should be looking at this. I keep saying I'm only as good as the clients allow me to be, and a lot of clients have allowed me to try stuff. Mm. Um, and you know, so if you look at clients, uh, you know, Per Zetterquist, Ericsson, is you know, fantastic investigator and enthusiast. Uh, I'd say Russell Grossman. Yes. Who, uh, in a great thing about Russell Grossman is, you know, unlike me, flitting around, he he goes into an organisation, digs in, and makes change happen. And I think that's admirable. I think you know, we talked about the IOIC, the um, Institute of Internal Communication. I think Dominic Walters, yes. who's the past president, yes. who I work with a lot, is just unfailingly enthusiastic uh, and engaging. And he's kept me going in you know, over the years. <laughs> and I'd say, you know, um, Sue Dewhurst yes. and Liam Fitzpatrick, I think, are continuing the debate and continuing the conversation. They are, yes. Yeah, I mean, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but I think I'm going to ask the question just in case there's something else I can eke out of you, which was my final question before we go into the quick fire questions. How would you describe your contribution to the profession? So what would you most like to be remembered for? <laughs> it's an awful question to ask, really, in a way, because I'm sure there's lots more you'd like to be remembered for in the future. But up to this point... The whole point about articulating what everyone suspected. Mm, mm. Uh, I think gi- giving some language. And, yes. I, and I hope, yeah, I mean, I hope that um, simplification doesn't mean dumbing down. Uh, and I, you know, I'm hoping that, 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 as you say, if you read some of the stories, you laugh. I think that some of the things we've done have been quite silly. <laughs> <laughs> and it hasn't taken a huge job to say, well, look, here's what's happening. Yes, you know, yes. End to end. And I think the idea that, you know, we took supply chain. We've always, um, if you look at all the, all the, as the waves, you know, uh, lean enterprise, total quality management, mm, end-to-end mm. supply chain management. Mm. Because you've had uh, communication, you had to communicate about that. We mm. all said, okay, well, apply those principles to yourself. Yes. So in supply chain, that's what communication is. You're, are trans, you're, you're taking information, turning it into meaning, into action. Yes. Via, yes. via partners. Yes. And yes. I think, you know, as I said, the one thing that communicators, the, the, the undiscovered you know, territory that, that they have to be had is understand the audience. 
the other is understanding the end-to-end process. Mm. So, mm. It, you know, when everyone was producing magazines that then were, were burned, yes. and they were never read, yes. or you looked at, you know, the, the, the email that gets put up on the notice board in the factory in Barcelona. If you go and see what happens yes. end-to-end, yes. you can see, do you produce the outcome? Yeah. As opposed to communicators being like artillerymen, which is firing messages into the ether mm. and not even knowing, you know, what happens. So I think that... Uh, of, mm. of course, you know when when I'm buried, I am going to have the communication escalator etched on my tombstone <laughs> with a big copyright on it. Was that was your escalator one of those things that came out of that moment with a with a flip chart and a pen in in your hand where you were? Yeah, yeah I, can imagine, I can remember exactly the moment we did it. Really? Because we're saying, how do we explain to people they're not going to create paradigm shifts, you know, <laughs> with a newsletter? Yes. Just one final supplementary question, because we mentioned employee engagement very briefly. Ah, uh, yes. And um, I'm thinking of another bill. I'm thinking of, of, of William Kahn, Bill Kahn, 1990, I guess, wrote that paper for an academic journal, which mentioned the phrase employee engagement and yep. then has sparked entire industry of organisations that now measure it on yep. a, an annual basis. I just wonder what your reflection is on that search for engagement i was listening to a podcast where he was interviewed and he's quite um i don't know if it's horrified is a strong word he's not he's not massively pleased as what as uh, with what's happened mm-hmm. since then himself i just wonder what, what yeah well it's probably right to be horrified mm-hmm. because if you go back to i can remember doing a survey in the late 80s uh, in the oil business where people were massively engaged in the pharmaceutical industry they're massively engaged they're proud they were recommending it to everybody uh, and they were you know they weren't doing a very good job yeah, yeah. so it, uh, rover cars when we did work with them, <laughs> they, um, they had the highest level of employee satisfaction ever recorded on the planet, <laughs> but weren't actually turning out very good cars. Yeah. And my argument is, don't look, you know, engage. What I'm not sure what engagement is. Yeah, you know, happy people skipping to work. Uh, I don't want to demean it, but I'm no. saying you've got to be engaged in something. Yes. So I come at Abraham Lincoln, the Gettysburg Address, is saying the, the battle in which we, we are engaged. Yes. So it's not saying we all feel engaged. You're saying we're, you know, there is, unless you're engaged in something, yeah. then I don't, I don't think it much matters. Mm. So it's all about, fo- you know, for, for me, the issue is about focusing, you know, what do I want to be remembered for? I want to be remembered for communication as a means to an end. Yes. Start at the end. Yes. That the engagement is in something. We're engaged in producing something. We're engaged in winning customers. We're, I think we all have a thirst for purpose. And what people want isn't just, it's lovely to work here. Increasingly, I think people want a sense of purpose and contribution. Mm. They want to feel that we are together engaged in something. Mm. And if that's how you build friendships and relationships, when you're commonly involved in something. Yes. And you feel you're contributing and it's making progress. Not, it's, you know, the employee experience, we love working here and the, and the canteen's great. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I don't want to be scathing about it. I think it's a great idea to build engagement. My issue is focus that energy mm. in something. Yes, towards a common goal yeah. that's meaningful. Let's turn to those quick fire questions, if we may. Um, the first one is: What would most surprise people about Bill Quirk? <sighs> um, possibly that I'm now getting a towel in there when I come out of the shower. But no, no, I think the one thing we didn't, that I didn't mention, is the big life change for me was I was dramatically converted to Christianity, in a, at a, which had a big impact on my view of life and my quest for purpose. When did that happen? Uh, 1989. 
Was there something that sparked? Well, there must have been something that sparked. Yeah, it was a, I, went, I, I went along by accident to a, a christening. I uh, thought they were all happy clappers and hated them. And then had the full road to Damascus experience. Was it something that was said? Was there something about the vicar or the, what was going on? Well, this is a much longer conversation. It was, uh, we went to this church for uh, six weeks. It's a very unconventional church. And it was uh, a place where we could put the girls, our daughters, into crash, and you could okay. have coffee and donut. That, that, that's what, and then after six weeks, I said, we're not going anymore. This is all happy clappers and guitar playing. Uh, and then we did have a dramatic you know, experience that flipped us completely. Um, so when I talk about my, I now go to a church run by my daughter. That's probably the most surprising wow. thing. That's not what I expected to be doing. Mm, that's a whole nother podcast. That's, sorry, that probably is a whole other podcast. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm holding myself back physically because there's lots and lots of questions I want to ask around that. Part two, everyone. Um, <laughs> right, what one book, journal or website should all communicators read? Well... I think the quest for purpose and focus in life, I think, you know, we, are, we have that thirst for it. There's a book called The Purpose Driven Life, which, you know, I read and found very useful. From the kind of communicator's leader's point of view, the one thing Dominic Walters uh, uh, I say, initiated me in was this thing about, you know, insights, the colours, uh, when you look at personality profile. Oh, yes. There's a thing, the communication style question, which I think I talked about uh, at that conference. I found that incredibly useful for dealing with leaders. Right. Because leaders have different personality types. And the thing we discovered is even though, all, you know, it's a complex challenge they've got, they've got all these stakeholders, according to the personality, they select the ones they like. Ah. So the systematic where they will select the, find the, the city analysts, the marketing people will, will be very spirited. So we discovered that according to your personality, you filter both your you know, communication you communicate and the responsibility you take on. Ah. And so we found a way of taking that model and mm. showing it to Lee's and saying, listen, you have to communicate in all four styles. Ah, yes. So you can't simply be, be stick where you're comfortable. Yes. And then we gave them a model for how you communicate in each style. And that's right. been incredibly useful. Right. Because it gives you a, a language to talk to leaders. So much so that, if this is another, maybe another podcast, one of the things my wife and I have done for years is train, my, my view is all this communication is terribly useful if it works at home. That's the acid <laughs> test. If you're still married at the end of this, you're doing very well. So we trained couples. Wow. In, in their relationship. So we said in, in companies, you get huge amounts of training. In your, in at home, you get nothing. And you don't have an extended family anymore to coach you. So we coached couples by using communication, how to communicate with each other more effectively. That must be fascinating. It was. And then we used that, uh, that four-colour stars with couples, which explained why they argued or what they, what they found interesting. Mm. So I just found that whole model open a whole way of having a conversation with leaders in which you said to them, listen, far from being, you know, I'm not here because you're terrible. I'm not here to, you know, as a remedial exercise. You, there are four things you have to be able to do. And the great news is you're already brilliant at two of them. Right, yes. And they all go, good. Yeah. So it's a question of, let's just look at which other two you could be brilliant at yes. and help you achieve those. Yes, yes. And that completely changed the conversation Yes. from, you know, you're bad and I need to fix you to you're brilliant and you could be brillianter. Yes, absolutely. What would you do tomorrow if you knew for certain yeah. you couldn't <laughs> fail? Uh, I would do rock guitar. 
<laughs> the, I mean, the one thing I picked up was, was learning to play the guitar. And I've always thought it'd be great to complement uh, the communication escalator with Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> That's got to be our play out music, I think. <laughs> <laughs> if you could go back in time, what careers advice would you give the, I don't know, let's say 20-year-old Bill Quirk? I think the twenty-year-old Bill Quirk was didn't think didn't we never planned for any jobs anyway. No. But I think I'd say, listen, you think that you know life may be boring after university, but actually, um, you're you know jobs are, are fun. Mm. You get to work with nice people doing interesting things in a challenging way. This is going to be very engaging, mm. Mm. and you're going to be engaged in something. Which is the, uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I don't. I think life has turned out so much better really? than I'd have expected. Twenty, absolutely. Yeah, that's you know, I'm for the minute I sat on that plane and I started the conversation with the guy to my left. That completely changed my life. Do you remember what you were actually talking about? Yeah, yeah. Can you share it with us? Uh, well, to be true, to be honest with them, he was asleep, and there was a girl on the aisle. I was trying to chat up. And the, uh, <laughs> now we're getting to it. <laughs> he woke. He woke up, and so I had to engage in conversation. But I was reading a book on change. Ah. Oh. And he was reading a book on change, and that's how we got talking. And then we started. Started. He drew triangular diagrams, and I knew at that point, as a, to be a consultant, you just need to be able to draw a triangular diagram, absolutely, a square diagram, yes, and a circle diagram. And finally, um, we give all our guests a billboard. Yeah. And you can put on that billboard a message for millions to yeah. see. What message are we going to put on that billboard? I think I would put a quote from Auden, which is, it is later than you think. Ooh. Is that just to get us a little bit more focused and speed up a little bit? <laughs> it's not. No, I think it's just, you know, what's in interest your questions about... Uh, planning and thinking, which is, I think, you know, there's a there's a point at which the you, it, it, I think you're always planning slowly. You need to be thinking further ahead. Mm. So mm. you know, I'm at a, a stage in life where, and you're kind of to say I wasn't coming to the career, but I probably am. So you know, the, the the torch probably needs to be handed to the um, <laughs> to the much younger Sujuas. <laughs> But I think there is a, you know, I think there, there is about now looking at age and stage. They say, one of the things I was taught was that you need to think about life every seven years. Mm. So that the, you know, you're 21, life is different, 28, 35 now. Mm. It's a bit like that TV programme, Seven Up. Yes. In which they follow. Oh, it's fascinating. Well, there's a guy from our college who's on that. Oh, so really? Yeah, I remember mean, they were filming in a, in a college. So the whole thing about, you know, just reviewing. And I think most people don't look ahead and review. Mm. We're so focused on day-to-day, especially as communicators. You're always peddling furiously. Mm. And one of the lessons we learned, I think, when we did reviews of communication functions is that you know 70% of your effort day-to-day is going to very low-value activities. Mm. Mm. So if you can pull back from the frenzy. Mm. Absolutely. Forward thinking. Forward thinking. Bill, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Well, it's been it's been fun. <laughs> so that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms podcast. To find out more about the books and the other resources that Bill and I mentioned, head over to the show notes on AB's website. That's abcom.co.uk. 
And while you're there, you might like to sign up for our monthly IC newsletter. It's called I Saw This and Thought of You. It'll give you updates on the show, plus other newsy nuggets from the world of internal comms. And if you did enjoy this episode, please give us a shout out on social media or perhaps you'd like to blog about the show. And if you think it might be interesting to other IC pros out there, you can help us become more discoverable to the IC community. Apparently the best way of doing that is simply by rating the show on iTunes. So it'd be great if you could do that too. Now, the Internal Comms podcast will be with you throughout this crisis. Coming up on the show, we have Amanda Coleman, the long-serving director of corporate comms at Greater Manchester Police, who knows firsthand about managing a crisis. She has now written a book and set up her own agency devoted to helping organisations prepare, manage and move on from a crisis. So hit the subscribe button today. All that remains is for me to say thank you. Thank you for choosing the Internal Comms podcast. And until we meet again, lovely listeners, stay safe and well. And remember, it's what's inside that counts.